You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to our fifth talk on the Holy Trinity. In the previous talk, I spoke about the Son and the Holy Spirit as distinct persons and as divine persons. Now, some of the adversaries of the Church have said that the Church didn't really have the belief in the Trinity in the second and third century, that it was something that was invented around the time of Nicaea in the beginning of the fourth century when you had the first council in 325. So I want to give you some evidence from history, from the tradition, from the second and third centuries, the early apologists and Christian writers that bear witness to the fact that the church did indeed believe in the Trinity during those days. It was not an invention of Nicaea, which added the word homoousion or consubstantial to the creed of the basic beliefs of the Twelve Apostles as we have in the Apostles' Creed. So what this is, is a presentation, the fifth talk of the Trinity in tradition, especially in the second and third centuries that's leading up to the Council of Nicaea, as I said, which was in 325. And this brings us up to the notion then of the homoousion, or that which is consubstantial with the Father, which means the unity of substance among persons who are really distinct. That's what we mean by consubstantial, or one in being with the Father, or homoousion. All those three expressions mean the same thing. That is putting it in other words. The unity of substance among persons who are really distinct. This is why it's so difficult for us to grasp this point. Because for us, each distinct person is a separate substance. If that were true in God, then there'd be three gods. And so, no, that's not the belief of the Bible. That's not the belief of the church. There's not three gods, there's only one God. But there's a threeness in God. What is that threeness? Well, we call it persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the point of this lecture, then, is to bring out some evidence from the early centuries to show that the writers like Origen and Tertullian and St. Justin and some of the other writers of that time, after the time of the writing of the New Testament, that they held for the Trinity, as we now profess it, and as was professed at Nicaea. So that Nicaea didn't invent a new belief in the Trinity. What Nicaea did was to come up with a word, homoousion, that they could express the relationship between the Son and the Father of being of the same substance, one in being with the Father. So at Nicaea, Arianism was condemned and a creed was proclaimed in which what pertains to the consubstantiality of the Son and to his generation from the substance of the Father was added to the ancient creeds, that is like the Apostles' Creed, after they condemned the formulas of the Arians. So with that, the Trinitarian doctrine 
was protected against the errors of, remember I mentioned subordinationism, that would be Arianism, that the Son and the Holy Spirit were created by the Father. So against the errors of subordinationism and the other errors opposed to orthodoxy like monarchianism, which holds that there's only one person in God and that Son and Holy Spirit are just different names for God the Father. At that time, there was, that is in the early 4th century, the time of Nicaea, at that time, there was no controversy about the Holy Spirit. And having established the true divinity of the Son, there was no problem about admitting the divinity of the Holy Spirit. The denial of the divinity of the Holy Spirit came later in the 4th century, and that was dealt with in the next council of Constantinople in 381. So when Macedonianism appeared, that is the doctrine which denies the divinity of the Holy Spirit, at the end of the 4th century, it was firmly rejected at the Council of Constantinople I. So here we're mainly concerned with the tradition of the first three centuries, that is the time of the writing of the first century, the writing of the New Testament, then the second century when you have the apologists like St. Justin, St. Clement of Alexandria, then you get up to the third century, you get people like Tertullian and Origen and Tatian and a few others. So what we maintain here is that from the very beginning, the church believed in the mystery of the Holy Trinity according to its essential elements. Namely, there's one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in three distinct persons. So that's the point of this lecture is to show that this truth was held in the first, second, and third centuries, even though they didn't have the more developed language and vocabulary to speak about it as they had in the fourth century and subsequently coming down to our own times. Now we can show this from the condemnation of Arianism at Nicaea in 325, because Arianism was looked upon as a new blasphemy and caused much commotion. There were tremendous theological battles in those days. Nowadays, people battle over politics and things like that in sports. But in those days, they'd get out in the streets and battle over theology and theological terms, sometimes mixing it up with swords and pitchforks and things like that. The great hero of orthodoxy is Saint Athanasius. He was the champion against Arius. He's the one who detected the error of Arius as soon as he heard of it and he began to oppose it and to organize his other bishops and priests against it as best he could. Now, at Nicaea, then the fathers added to the traditional creed of the church this key word that I mentioned in the last talk, homoousion, which means consubstantial. The word homos in Greek means same, and ousia means being. All right, so it means the same being. And the Latins say consubstantial to translate that. That's translated into Latin as consubstantial. And they also said that he was produced from the being of the Father. Out of the substance of the Father came forth the Son. So with these additions, the true divinity of the Son was asserted along with his procession from the Father as a true generation. And it also affirmed the unity of the divinity as shared 
by both Father and Son without any division in the substance. They're not talking about two substances. There's only one being. The Father gives the Son everything that He is except to be Father. So by these words, all the suggestions of the Arians with regard to two gods and modalism, Sabellianism, and division in the divine substance, all of these things were excluded. Now, let's take a look at what the Council of Nicaea said. We're talking about the very first council of the church. Here's what they said. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of all things, both visible and invisible. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We have that in our creed now. But they go immediately. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, the only begotten Son of the Father, that is, of the substance of the Father, that is, he comes from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created. He is generated. He's begotten. He's not created. He's not a creature. That's what Arius said. Arius said the Son is a creature. So Nicaea condemns Arius, saying he's begotten, not created. Then comes the key word, consubstantial with the Father. Homo usian. He is consubstantial, or as we say now, one in being with the Father. Through him all things were made, those in heaven and those on earth as well. Only God can create. Everything was made through the Son. So the Son creates. That means he's divine. Then he goes into his temporal activities. For the sake of us men and for our salvation, he came down, was made flesh and became man. He suffered and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is going to come to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. That's all they said about the Holy Spirit. At that time, there was no dispute about the personality and about the divinity of the Holy Spirit. So the council didn't address that. It was only 25 or 40 years after this council that some of the individuals began to deny the divinity of the Holy Spirit. So the next council, Constantinople I, addresses that problem, which we have in our creed at Sunday Mass. Now listen to what they go on to say. In order to prove what they just said, as for those who say there was a time when he did not exist, that's a quote, and, quote, before he was begotten, he did not exist, unquote, and, quote, he was made from nothing or from another hypostasis or essence, alleging that the Son of God is mutable or subject to change, such persons the Catholic and Apostolic Church condemns. So anybody who would say that there was a time when the Son didn't exist, or that he was created, or that he changed in any way. The council condemns anybody that would say such a thing, because the Son is consubstantial, one in being with the Father. So that's kind of the basic idea there of this notion of the homoousion being consubstantial with the Father. Now, there is a testimony from these early centuries of the common faith of Christians. There were no divisions you didn't have Orthodox and Catholics and Protestants in the 2nd and 3rd century. They're all Christians. They were all united. They had different bishops ruling them, but they were all basically belonged to one church. Now, in the baptismal liturgy, both from the formula, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and from the triple immersion as witnessed by the Didache, it's one of the early teaching books of the 1st century, and various writers like St. Justin, about 150, in St. Irenaeus, about 180, they all bear witness to this one fact that 
the new Christians were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit on the same level. So that's an indication that you're talking about three distinct persons, co-equal with the Father, one in substance with the Father. Now you have the baptismal creed, which is the Apostles' Creed, which I cited recently. That's an indication of this. And also the prayer of the time. The prayer of the church manifests what the church believes. There's this old expression, lex orandi, lex credendi. The norm of praying is the norm of believing. So in the prayer, which is of the time, which was normally directed to the Father, but always along with the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then you have the doxologies or the glorifications of God. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. So those are indications of the belief in the Trinity of three distinct divine persons who are consubstantial one with the other. Now we can show this also from the authority of the church declaring against the heretics like Arius and Montanus and Sibelius and so forth. So Roman pontiffs such as Saints Victor, Saint Zephyrinus, and Saint Callistus, first part of the third century, they condemned the Monarchianists and the Sibelians as being heretics. And Pope Saint Dionysius in the year 260, so Origen died around 250, something like that. Saint Cyprian was around that time, died a martyr. Saint Dionysius right around that same time. He condemned all the anti-Trinitarian errors in a letter of his, which he wrote in the year 260. Now, there's also a witness of church writers. They're called the pre-Nicene fathers. That is, they wrote before the Council of Nicaea. So the, in theology, treating of the Trinity, the theologians make a distinction between those who wrote before Nicaea and those who wrote after Nicaea, because Nicaea is a watershed of orthodoxy on how one is to speak about the mystery of the Holy Trinity. Now, most of the pre-Nicene writers are witnesses to the Trinitarian faith. They firmly hold for the unity of God, the distinction of persons, which they derive from the two processions. Now, we haven't spoken yet about the processions. I'm going to dedicate a whole talk to the processions, the origins in God of generation and what's called spiration, how the Son and the Holy Spirit are produced inside of God from the Father. That's called the processions. But they bear witness to that here in the third century. They rejected the main points of Arianism even before it was proclaimed and even before it was condemned by the popes. Pope St. Clement of Rome, right around the year 100, writes, God lives and the Lord Jesus Christ lives and the Holy Spirit, who are the faith and the hope of the elect. And we have witness to the church's belief of that time in the Trinity and St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was martyred in the year 107 by Origen, who lived in the first half of the third century, the great scripture scholar, and St. Athanasius, who lived in the first part of the fourth century. Now, some of the statements of these pre-Nicene writers are quoted against the doctrine by those who deny the doctrine, and they say 
that these people did not hold the belief of the Trinity as expressed by Nicaea in 325. So here we want to show that those claims are not correct. Now here are some of the difficulties that were raised. In several writers, there are expressions which seem to favor subordinationism. The Arians and the semi-Arians made great use of them. They say, for example, that the Father is superior to the Son and the Holy Spirit, who are in the second and third place. St. Justin says that, that the Father is superior to the Son and the Holy Spirit, who are in the second and third place. So the Arians said, see, that shows that they're not on the same level as the Father. Origen calls the Son the second God, and the generation of the Son is said to be Vitation and Novation, they were early heretics, is said to be voluntary rather than necessary. And finally, that the Son served the Father in creation and did his will. That's what Theophilus of Antioch said around the year 200. And Origen seems to have said something like that. The Son served the Father in creation. They concluded from that, that shows that the Son was a creature of the Father. Now, when they explain the dogma, they use theories which seem to be tainted with subordinationism and modalism. They explain the generation of the Son in reference to the creation of the world, and then they try and assume from that that the Son is a creature. The Western theologians, that is the ones who wrote in Latin, like Tertullian and Hippolytus and Novation, they call the Trinity the economy or the dispensation or the disposition, or the administration of the monarchy. And this sounds a little bit like it might be a modalism or subordinationism. It wasn't meant that way, but it could be interpreted that way. And they attribute the appearances in the Old Testament to the Son because the Father is invisible by reason of his immensity, but they say the Son is visible according to the operation proper to him especially if they claim that he was created. Origen seems not to give full simplicity to the Son because he contains the ideas of things to be created. It's like the Platonic notion that the Son contains all the ideas of the universals. So there are various expressions in Origen which seem to indicate, well, maybe that he's denying the simplicity of the Son. And he says that the Son has less knowledge than the Father. He limits the operations of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he also says that one should pray only to the Father rather than to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Now, Catholic authors in the last 100, 150 years disagree on interpreting these statements of whether or not they really are against the traditional doctrine of the Trinity or whether they are expressions that give expression to the traditional doctrine of the Trinity, but that they're ambiguous and that they can be interpreted in various ways. So the Catholic authors are divided on this. Most of the authors find ways to justify these statements if you look at them from a certain point of view that they can be interpreted in an orthodox way and not implying that the Son is a creature of the Father and that the Holy Spirit is a creature of the Son. Now, the faith of the early church, as a matter of fact, did not depend on these particular authors. Some of them were at one point or another heretics or schismatics like Tertullian and Hippolytus. There were doubts about their doctrine during their own lives. For example, Tatian, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Novation, who's a heretic, 
and perhaps even Origen. Origen was condemned in several regional councils after his death for hundreds of years. There was always a basic understanding of this important doctrine, especially according to its essentials in the church. Even though individuals may have given expression to it in ways that are ambiguous, the doctrine itself was held by the church universal, namely that there's only one God and that there are three really distinct persons in God and that those three persons are all divine. None of them are creatures. Now these doubtful modes of expression of these authors can be given an orthodox interpretation. For example, regarding the expression given above, putting the word in the second place and the Holy Spirit in the third place can merely be a way of speaking about the three persons and how they proceed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That the Father is superior to the Son can refer to his priority of origin. There's no doubt about that, that he's principle without a principle. He has priority in the order of origin. And the derivation of Tertullian can refer to origin. That is, origin said that hatheos, the word God, may refer to the Father's ungeneratedness. And that this notion that God is the second God can refer to the second one having divinity. The first one having divinity is the Father, the second one is the Son, the third one is the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that they're not co-equal, but it has to do with their origin. The Father comes first, then the Son, then the Holy Spirit. Not in time, not in time, but in principle, in origin. The theories of the apologists of the second century and the theologians of the third century, even though they sound like the Gentile syncretists, are really very different. The generation of the word, which is called temporal, has to do with its revelation to us, not its eternal being in the bosom of the Father. It has to do with its manifestation, its manifestation in history. And the economy of salvation is the same thing. Also, the theophanies recounted in the Bible are attributed to the Word because He reveals Himself and the Father to us. He's the Word. He is the revelation of the Father. So it's the Word in Scripture who reveals the Father. Now, it's more difficult to defend some of Origen's statements with regard to the less simplicity of the Son, that He has less knowledge than the Father, distributing the divine operation to the persons and his theory about prayer. As I said, some of the regional councils during the centuries after the death of Origen, around 250, condemned various propositions which they figured came from Origen, whether they did or didn't. But the thinking of the fathers of the fourth century about the consubstantiality of the Trinity is totally orthodox. There is, when we talk about the fathers of the fourth century, we're talking about St. Athanasius, St. Basil, they're called the Cappadocians, St. Basil, St. Gregory Nazianzus, and St. Gregory of Nyssa, these great theologians in the fourth century. They are all writers who defend the homoousion and the fact that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are consubstantial with the Father. So after the condemnation, of Arianism at Nicaea in 325, there were constant theological fights in the fourth century over the meaning of the homoousion, that is consubstantiality. The Arians and some what are called semi-Arians 
were active and influenced the emperors, Constantius and Valens, against the Orthodox. There were subordinationists and those who were adversaries of the Holy Spirit. All of this tremendous intellectual ferment and activity had to do with the Trinity. As I mentioned before, I think in one of the previous talks, the notion of person came out of this theological debate. So that's where we get the notion of person and personality that's treated in psychology and psychiatry. So the point here is to determine the thinking with regard to consubstantiality of the fathers of the church. As I said, consubstantiality means the unity of substance among persons who are also really distinct. So what we're saying here is that the homoousion, the consubstantiality of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the orthodox teaching of the church, which was hammered out at the Council of Nicaea, and it was defended over long treatises and tractates and so forth by these great heroes of the 4th century theology, St. Athanasius, and then, of course, later came St. Augustine at the end of the 4th century, St. Ambrose, and then the Cappadocians, who are St. Basil, St. Gregory of Nazianzus, and St. Gregory of Nyssa. So that kind of gives you a bird's-eye view, very briefly, of what the thinking was in the church during the time of the pre-Nicene fathers in the 2nd and 3rd century, and then the Orthodox presentation, the full presentation that we now have in the Creed by the great theologians, the fathers of the church of the 4th century. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.